0: The Bain Free Radio
1: Hour. On the podcast, Kevin Eikenberry discusses The Crossing, discounts on Bain e-books, and we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirod. This week, Griffin Barber sits down with Kevin Eikenberry to discuss the time travel novel, The Crossing. This is Eikenberry's Bain Books debut, and we are excited to have him become a part of the Bain Books family. The Crossing is part of Eric Flint's A Seedy Shards universe and was one of the last books that Eric had a hand in developing before he passed away. We'll bring you that discussion in just a moment, but first, the news. Did you know that Bain Books offers free teaching guides for many of our books? These guides can be used by teachers, homeschoolers, and more to dive deep into learning with Bain. Kevin Eikenberry's The Crossing will be getting the teaching guide treatment. And to celebrate, we thought we'd offer discounts on all of our backlist of novels with teaching guides. Get $1 off all Bain ebooks with teacher's guides, including such titles as Monster Hunter International, 1632, Uncompromising Honor, several by Robert A. Heinlein, and many more. For a complete list, check out Bain.com. These discounts are good until the end of the month and are available wherever Bain eBooks are sold. And that's it for the news.
2: Hi there. I'm Griffin Barber, your host for today's edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. Kevin Eikenberry is an established indie military SF author penning nine Four Horsemen universe novels, including the trilogies The Peacemaker Trilogy and Rise of the Peacemakers. He's contributed two novellas to Chuck Gannon's Murphy's Lawless series, a part of the Kane riordan universe. His latest is a slight departure from his usual fare, however, in that The Crossing is an alternate history set in the early years of the American Revolution. Hello and welcome, Kevin.
3: Thanks, Griffin, glad to be be here.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about
3: yourself? So I'm I'm one of those folks that came to writing late in life. Uh, I started writing uh, short stories and uh, working on a first novel. While I was teaching ROTC in about the same time frame as The Crossing is set in 2008 to 2010, and. Uh, Never really thought I'd be a writer. And so to have all these books come has kind of been an interesting uh, process. Uh, wouldn't trade it for the world. And like you said, yeah, this this book is a little bit different than everything else that I've ever written. I, I tell people this was the, the book I never knew how to write until I had the opportunity to work with Eric Flint. And that kind of changed everything as Eric did. <laughs>
2: yeah. So uh, I, I like to ask the hardest questions first. Uh, what was the coolest aspect of The Crossing for you?
3: You know, I think that the the coolest aspect for me is, you know, having not read a lot of alternate history until I first had a conversation with Eric in 2014 and digging deep into the research and that the history that that was available as I started to to build the outline, the coolest aspect was every time I turned around, I kept finding little points where there could be changes, where there could be something that would change, that would drive the, the narrative farther and open up the gate, if you will, a little bit more of how the, the changes to American history would happen. And they were, they were little things and then they were big things. And then they were kind of like the holy crap moments. If I do this, this is a massive change. And it, being able to go through that type of process was just incredibly cool. Cause it just seemed like every time I turned around with every different research book I, I grabbed, there was something new that was going to enable me to, to take that narrative a little bit farther. It was really awesome.
2: So uh, follow on to that. And so you stumbled on it kind of or uh, you had never really thought about it, work your way towards it, or the characters kind of dictate what happened? Or...
3: So it's kind of funny. My It's kind of been a long running family joke that when I was probably four or five years old, I told my parents that I was there when George Washington crossed the Delaware. And I don't know. I don't know if that just kind of sat in my subconscious for a while. But while I was starting to, to write, I kept a little notebook where I would write down ideas. And one of the ideas that I wrote down one day is what if the coin that Washington reputedly threw across the Delaware River prior to the Battle of Trenton was a bicentennial quarter? And I didn't do anything with that because it was real, it was literally something I didn't think I was ever going to be able to write. It just it didn't seem like it was in my wheelhouse. And uh, when I had a conversation with Eric in 2014, I asked him that question and and his eyes lit up and he's like, let's go to lunch tomorrow. And so we started talking about this process and it really became something where finally he just kind of said, hey, you can do this. It's time to sit down and write this book. And so from, from that point forward, then it was a matter of finding the right characters and finding the storyline. And, and yeah, the characters and the story really kind of pulled me in. And I, I, it's one of those books, it, it sounds funny as a writer, but I don't remember a lot of writing this manuscript because it just flowed. There were just some aspects that just, it just kind of raced out of my head in a lot of ways. And it was just a tremendous uh, amount of fun to write.
2: Well, cool. That kind of answers a little bit of the next question, which is the, uh, in your forward, you're right that The Crossing was developed with alternate history master Eric Flint. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more detail about how that all, all ended up happening?
3: So we met at the Superstars Writing Seminar in 2014, and that's a, a seminar that's for writers. It's more focused on the business side of writing versus the craft side of writing. And, and Eric was one of those uh, forces of nature where you recognize that this guy really knew what he was talking about. And he was so genuine and so authentic that, you know he even made a promise to all of us as we went through his contracts class, that if we had bad contract, he would review it for us and tell us why it was bad. And, and I actually had the opportunity to do that with him in the in this process, but at the, the dinner, that I had with him. And when I asked him that question, we had an opportunity to have probably a couple hour conversation between he and the other folks at the table and everybody was welcome. And it finally was just one of those things that for me, I'd been scared to even think about this topic when I was talking with him, but it just kind of was like, I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna ask the question, and he was so excited about it. And you know, over the course of the next several years, of course, he and I both had some health issues. So right after we met, I had a, a an, an infection that tried to kill me, and then a couple of years after that, Eric had his first battle with cancer. So we were kind of back and forth without a plan for a while until we finally got the opportunity to sit down, and that was again when he just said, "I think you're ready for this, and you need to write it." And so that's when I, I dug into the manuscript and got going. Cool.
2: So. Uh- Shifting gears a little bit, which uh, of the characters of The Crossing surprised you?
3: <laughs> in, a, in a way, they all kind of did. You know, it was it was something where I started the, the, the book. The book starts with a particular training exercise, and I won't spoil it. But that's something that happened to me when I was a very young cadet. And being able to take that kind of experience and you, know, you start writing from that authenticity piece of this is an experience that happened to me. And then you take that and you apply it to a cadet who's a fictional creation, and then you, you start uh, smattering through different things in their squad as far as the, the folks that they're working with and, and their own qualities and such. Uh, I think, uh, in a way, all of them surprised me in, in certain ways. I think the one that, that gets me the most, though, was Dunaway, and Dunaway was one who, you know, she starts the, the, the entire book as the sophomore cadet or freshman cadet that does not want to be there. Uh, she does not want to be an ROTC. Her parents are pushing her through it. And it's something where she just that's not her thing. And I had thought long and hard about doing this kind of redemptive arc where she becomes integral to the, the tactical situation at hand. And I, I played with it and I, I wrote some notes and it just it just didn't work. And so I decided that I was going to just go ahead and keep writing the manuscript and see what develops because even though I like to plot things out, sometimes characters have a way of, of doing things differently. And in this particular case, it kind of came to me in a rush what I could do with her. And it was just one of those where it was like, that makes a lot of sense. And I really like what I what I can do with it if I can pull it off. And I think I did. It was a lot of fun to, to write her and being able to set her up for potentially for more things in the future is pretty awesome.
2: Yeah, no, it, it, it is uh, pretty cool the way it's, it pulls out and uh, without trying to spoil anything for everybody. I, th- I thought that was uh, interesting, especially in that she figures in the ending. Uh, pretty, pretty intensely. So very neat there. Uh, what well, job well done. Thank um, you. And uh, so th- that particular character was just kind of the, of the cast that you were looking at? Or was it somebody you like, I got to have this person in there?
3: So uh, it was something that I wanted to have, because even when I so when I was teaching ROTC, we had a several kids like this who uh, would either come into ROTC to explore it, because the the thing with uh, Reserve Officers Training Corps is you could take the first two years of the program without any type of commitment. So you could come in and learn about the program, learn about, in my particular case, the Army, and just kind of figure out if it was something that you wanted to do or not. Now, we had kids that were on scholarship that knew that they were going to go into the Army and whatnot, but we had a lot of folks that were just trying to figure it out. And I know you're going to ask me a little bit later on, I'll kind of steal it now, but mo- all of the cadets are amalgamations of, of actual cadets and soldiers I knew over the course of my 24-year career. And so it was fun to be able to put them together. So there's a little bit of real cadets in, in the, the character of Dunaway and everybody else. And that was, again, so much fun to write because we saw the entire gamut of personality and drive and heart and uh, perseverance in uh, the cadets that we taught.
2: So uh, the crossing naturally deals with historic figures of the Revolutionary War. Uh, was there any trepidation in writing these characters into the crossing or was it like pure fun? Uh, there's
3: a there's a moment of terror. You know, I think the first time I got to a, I got to a scene where I was going to write George Washington. Uh, it was, you know, there's that moment where you're 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 kind of convincing yourself at the keyboard of I'm really about to do this. And you you kind of just you you have to persevere a little bit. And you have to kind of muddle through at first, but it got to the point where it was absolute pure fun. And the the scene where Washington throws the coin is my favorite scene that i wrote of all historical figures i i giggled like a little kid as i wrote that as i wrote that scene because it was so much fun to take that in and interject just a little bit of humor into what was probably a very serious time but yeah. something that was completely in the character though i was developing with washington and with uh, general nathaniel green that well, was so much fun
2: and something that had been with you for so long
3: yeah, and,
2: the it's to be an idea to be able to like execute on that idea that you'd had for so long.
3: Exactly. Yeah, that, that moment of execution was just a tremendous amount of fun. It was I just like I said, I, I just sat there giggling as I wrote it. It was great.
2: Cool. So uh, there are other other historical figures. And uh, one of the ones that I'm wondering about for uh, future books, I'm hoping I'm going to see Wilhelm von Steuben. Yes. The father so, of the U.S. Army. I think that would be fascinating
3: you know, I I've been looking at, so, you know, in the, the course of going through this, I've, I've been given the green light to start looking at SQL plan and whatnot. And it's uh, von Steuben and uh, Lafayette certainly will play a role as they arrived into to, to uh, meet with Washington in 1777, which is where the, the the book that I want to do next will go. Right. And I think that that plays a, a huge role. I think there's other things that can play across the both the British Army and across the, the particularly the Army of the North on the United States side or the continental side. So a lot of fun to be had there if I can get to that point and, and delving into those historical figures I look forward to.
2: Yeah. I mean that that camp that year in camp, which may or may not really happen the way it happened, we're, we'll leave that for spoilers. But uh, for very fascinating stuff. It certainly will be the clarion call to everybody that hey, not only are we accepting applications, but we're we know what we're doing. Uh, exactly. Yeah, so very cool. Um, so the I really like the cadets, and and one in particular, uh, Coke in my case. Uh, Without getting too deep into spoiler land, what inspired that particular guy?
3: So I had a couple of of folks that I've known over over my career, both uh, one NCO, non-commissioned officer, and one of the cadets, who were really big into bodybuilding, and they're just massive guys. And both of them were extremely quiet and extremely shy until you got to know them. And as I was writing up the, the characters, I decided that I wanted to use uh, that type of that body type and that, you know, sort of uh, quiet hero type if I, if I could. And so I just kind of smooshed the two of them together and tried to figure out what, to, what his role would be. And for, for him to be the, the quiet, uh, not necessarily take charge person to, to, to be able to, to jump in and do the things that he does because of his, of his heart and, and how he views uh, his peers was was really cool to, to be able to do and kind of unpeel that onion a little bit and really get into that psyche, it was fun. Cool.
2: So in a similar vein, uh, which character from The Crossing would you want to avoid like the plague and why? You
3: know, it, it's easy to say the the antagonist or the, the primary antagonist being the captain of the, of the Dragoons, Sutton. Uh, Because he is also an amalgamation of a lot of people that I've known over the course of my life. And those are not the folks that you want to hang around with. Um, So that's the the easy button answer. Um, Because that's what you want to do with an antagonist. You know, the antagonist is always the hero of their own story. So they think they're doing everything great and wonderful. And really, they're in complete opposition to what your protagonist is wanting to do. Um, I think in that, if I widened it out a little bit on the enemy side, uh, Lord General Cornwallis was an interesting character historically. And a lot of Americans don't know that he did an awful lot more after actually surrendering at Yorktown in 1781 for the British Army, particularly in India. He had a long and very storied career. But he was also one of those folks that the, the way that he looked at warfare, he wasn't a very nice guy. No. And so I, he would be a guy that I would I would definitely want to stay away from uh, in the course of this story.
2: <laughs> well, And then the uh, for me, one of the, the, the it's the it always is fascinating to watch the affected people. At a distance, yeah. <laughs> so long as you're not opposite them, but the, I, absolutely the ineffective people, the the uh, so, such as the commander of the Hessians uh, in the mm-hmm. uh, in the theater. Um, uh, he's the one I would uh, this guy just
3: you know i think in a lot of ways uh colonel rawl was kind of was almost a sympathetic character he was he was stuck in a situation where he felt like he needed more and he didn't get it and he was completely paranoid by you know the things that were going on and as, especially in northern new jersey after you know, the the Basically, after like September, October time frame, they were harassed constantly. Yeah. And he constantly had his men drilling and on alerts. And I think that he just he was rendered ineffective by his own anxiety in a lot of ways. So I kind of I like I said, I kind of feel like he's a little bit of a sympathetic character, but in the end, he, he I was just not imagine able to- the
2: smell. Oh, For yeah. some reason, he just—I Im- just imagine him not having a pleasant smell, like some serious I, body odor going.
3: You know, I—I I just think that there would be a whole lot about him and his inner staff that I th- like that they—they they were trying to keep the conflict at arm's length and basically telling themselves that things weren't going to happen when they could see and they could sense that things were going to be different, and that effect was trickling down to their men. It was the interesting situation with them.
2: Well, and also that, that you know, by design, as Washington kept you know poking at him to to make sure that they were on edge the entire time absolutely Uh, so which character would you love to see as an ally uh
3: so that was kind of fun to 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 be able to 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 delve into a little bit more um especially like you said writing the historic figures uh i look forward to you know hopefully working a little bit more with like general nathaniel green green was an interesting character uh from the revolution in of his own right uh Washington, of course, and, and his staff, you know, his longtime aide-de-camp, Tench Tillman, and other folks were a lot of fun to get into and write and kind of see how the, how they interact as a staff with him. Um, from that, the, the rest of the ally perspective, there's the, the gunsmith that's uh, in the story, Daniels. Uh, he and his daughter really are kind of representative of the entire uh, colony, if you will. And how the the cadets are able to make allies out of them, I think is going to be something that will will continue to uh, roll forward. And the different things that the cadets are going to be able to bring to, uh, you know, 18th century America is going to be very interesting because they have that ability to persuade just by their presence. But then they also show that they are doing things that nobody thought they could do.
2: So uh, the events of the crossing depend heavily on the geography of the area. Uh, I had the sense you had walked the battlefields. Uh, If that's true, are there any recommendations for American Revolution sites to visit?
3: So I actually have not walked the battlefield at Trenton. Uh, I've done some stuff in the Northeast, particularly around the Boston area with Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill and whatnot. Um, I I haven't haven't had the chance to walk around uh, where Trenton actually took place. Uh, The best part that you have with delving into alternate history is getting into research And you can really, if you dig deep enough, find a whole lot of stuff. I mean, not just from the National Park Service and and the different Battlefield Commission sites, whatnot. But there's been a couple of books. Obviously, uh, if you're familiar, 1776 by McCullough uh, a few years ago. It's a really good book about that entire year and the the work up to Trenton and the immediate aftermath. Uh, There's another one uh, called Washington's Crossing by David Hackett Fisher, which is tremendous. That was a book that I, I leaned on a lot because he goes into so much detail about the, the situation in New Jersey prior to the Battle of Trenton and immediately thereafter that I, I really had a sense from, from that book and the different maps and all the different, uh, uh, I lost the word, the different, I guess, captures from the, the, the participants about what took place. It was It was really fantastic to be able to kind of piece all of that together and I will admit that I sketched out a little map of what Trenton looked like and what the ground looked like to try to figure out what the the tactical movements were, kind of like you know, I would have done in the Army with operational terms and graphics and just kind of laying out where things were and seeing how things progressed. And that really uh, enabled me to, to bring a little bit of authenticity to it, but without actually having walked that space. Now, do I want to walk future spaces? Absolutely. You know, talking about doing a future book about 1777, I, I want to go to Saratoga. I want to walk that ground. Because there's a lot of things that could have that, you know, talking about changes, there's a lot of things that could have changed at Saratoga, that would have had a a major effect on how things played out in the American Revolution.
2: So if you could go back, is there an occasion or an event that uh, you'd like to observe during the Revolutionary War?
3: I think Trenton's the obvious answer, right? Um, you, you'd want to see that. Uh, I think there's, for, from my perspective, there's a couple of things I would like. To, I'd love to be able to see, uh, like Lexington and Concord, for example, being able to, to be there at the, the very beginning, uh, seeing the envelopment of the British forces at the uh, Yorktown in 1781 and the eventual surrender. Uh, I think between those two, there's a, a myriad of different things that you know you're familiar with, or are there are things that you wanted to that you would want to experience. I grew up in eastern Tennessee and there was always the talk of the over mountain men who left from the, the Elizabeth and Sycamore Shoals area and went across to Kings Mountain to, to meet up with uh, uh, the revolutionary forces under General Greene. Seeing something like that would also be pretty cool, too. So oh, yeah. uh, I think that there's you know those watershed moments that you want to have the opportunity to see. But I think that if there were one thing that I could call it back to, I, I would just love to be a fly on the wall in Washington's headquarters. And just see, you know, as a, as an officer, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time on staff, and being able to see how the staff work, you know, used to be done, would be really, I think, phenomenal to just kind of watch how, not necessarily just the leadership took place, but also how the tactics were developed and and how they solved the the terrible problem of poor logistics in that time frame would be really interesting to to see, at least from from my perspective.
2: Well, and communication too. I mean that that. Yeah, it bottles exactly. my mind, you know, the, the amount of time it would take for you to get the message to them. And if the circumstances had changed, that for me, it's, it's like, you know, uh, dancing in the dark with multiple partners.
3: <laughs> Just- absolutely yeah i mean the, the logistics piece communications the intelligence piece and you know how all that stuff works so slowly but then they were able to to piece together the information uh and be able to to craft plans to be able to to be tactically responsive to the enemy that's i can't even fathom it and you know we're used to it being you know listed from my persp- my experience in the army you know we're, we we've operated at the speed of light i have radios I have data that's transmitted to me I have all this information that's literally at my fingertips and they didn't have that they had their eyes and their ears and occasionally the operatives and spies that they might have out there but what was the reliability factor of that I'm sure it was fairly low but yet they were still able to to take all that information synthesize it and create a plan it's just amazing
2: well and then then to know your subordinates to know them so well that they you know if i need somebody to arrive to the rescue i want x y and z there doing that absolutely uh, you know it, it uh to to kind of realize that on based on the information that they're getting I, i'm going to suspect that this is what they'll do and here's how we'll we'll coordinate with them uh, just exactly well it blew my mind you know and not just uh, washington but all the generals of the era Cornwallis. And, Uh, And even up until basically until the field radios were invented, Uh just uh, is shocking to me how, uh, how commanding people could be uh, the, uh, and be able to actually be uh, responsive to changing circumstances on the ground uh, as much as a mile away. And so many uh, hundreds or thousands of men uh, involved is really uh, impressive to me. Um, So, the uh, the crossing deals with a lot of concerns over loss of a certain technology. We don't want to get into too many spoilers, but uh, was this event baked into the idea when it came to you or something that grew out of your work with the story?
3: A little bit of both. Um, it's a matter of what the, the cadets suddenly appearing back in time that you know they would recognize where they are and what's going on and the temptation would be there just to run and find a quiet space and you know just live out the rest of their lives. And being able to provide that moment where they've lost something and they have to recover it because they've been, they've been trained and it's been drilled into their heads that you cannot lose this. This is one of the, the most vital, piece, vital pieces of equipment that you must have and losing it or misplacing it is a major, major thing. And so they've, they've been told this, it's, it, they realize it's a big deal and they recognize that not only can they not recover it, but the only chance they have to potentially do anything to combat its loss is to report to Washington and face those ramifications head on. And I think it's a, it's kind of a, a maturation, if you will, for the cadets to recognize, you know, oh God, we've lost this thing and this is really bad, you know, and it's not just our cadre that are going to be really mad at us we now could affect the outcome of the American Revolution based off of what's been lost. So they feel like they have to go and recover it. And that really drives that that narrative forward and makes them have to report in essentially.
2: Right. And so it, it was kind of interesting to me. I mean, obviously, you know, the soldiers shouldn't lose their equipment ever. Otherwise, they'll face discipline and uh, that kind okay. of thing. But uh, it seems the protection of technology as a general kind of field, is something soldiers and airmen shot down in enemy territory would be concerned with much more than uh, the, a few a cadet or the, the infantrymen in a standard uh, uh, straight leg formation kind of thing. Right. Um, was uh, this an outgrowth of your background in the U.S. Army or something that came to you with an uh, alternate history time travel uh, of the genre?
3: So it's a little bit of both. I had, a, I had an experience as a cadet where we were at the, it was called advanced camp at the time, and it was where all the, the junior cadets in the country went to a couple different locations, and you, you proceed through a, a six-week course, and you're rated from one to N, and that's how you get your assignments in the Army. And in the course of doing the, the six weeks, you're in a, opportunities for daily leadership positions. And I think I was the platoon leader for for that particular day. And the platoon was in formation. And my platoon leader or my platoon sergeant and I had our, our gear next to a tree. And I, we had gone over and I literally was taking off my rucksack. So I, I, I put my my rifle against the tree and I set down my rucksack and I reached to pull up my rifle and there was a cadre member there from a, a different school. I don't remember where he was from. And he and he grabbed my rucksack and my rifle and said, What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm dropping my gear because we're going into the training site. And he berates me for like 15 minutes about you can't leave your gear, you can't leave it sitting like this. And I'm thinking, I'm looking around, like, we're not in an unsecure area. <laughs> I, I don't understand what the problem is. Every, everybody here can see the fact that you're basically now just screwing with me because you grabbed my gear because I set it by the tree, and you know, like I said, you, as far as the loss of equipment, that's something that as a cadet, yeah, there's people that are always on you about that because it's, you don't want to lose things, you don't want to you don't want to hold up training, you don't want to be the guy that loses a rifle on a on a training range and everybody has to then line up in a ripple line, single file and line abreast and walk through and try to find the stuff. You don't want to do that, so you have the you have that fear of losing stuff. But then again, like I said, it's the it's the the maturation of the idea of not only would are they not in trouble, they might actually enter, They might look at you know the entire outcome of the American Revolution being changed by the recovery of the equipment that they lose.
2: Right. No, it was it was a, uh, an excellent MacGuffin, as they say. Uh, but also, I could tell that that now that you tell me that story. I can tell that that had an impact on you. Like oh, it, very much so. And they're like, oh,
3: you know what? Uh, I'm going to
2: use that uh, that impetus of that negative encounter with this jerk <laughs> to yeah. uh, write something it, about it. And uh, it's cool.
3: Those are the things, you know, people always ask as a, as a military guy, you know, what of my military experience, you know, leads its way into what I do. And in some cases, it's those little things, you know, the, the little interactions you had with people, either positive or negative, that are the, the lasting things, or at least for me, are things that I can pull up and use in a, a certain way. And in this particular case, yeah, I was totally channeling that moment because uh, I still to this day, I mean, <laughs> I'd like to, to to run up to get that sergeant again and be like, dude, what was what was your deal? I don't I still don't get it to this day. So
2: just because he could
3: yeah most likely just
2: because they could
3: most likely all right well
2: so uh kind of the penultimate question here on the bainfree radio R what aside from its considerable entertainment value do you hope uh, readers will carry with them after reading the cross
3: so as we were going through outlining what the story could be the the first idea that i had was just to take an army unit a regular army unit and have them be the the unit that was in place and I started thinking about that. Thought that would be that would be fun, but it would be a little bit different being able to to bring in cadets. Because you know, if you're a young officer in the army, you're a second lieutenant. You're you're the butt of everybody's joke. You're always going to get lost or lose your equipment or whatever else. And cadets are sometimes worse in that chain, that pecking order, right? And you have the opportunity to. At least for me, it was it was the idea of I when I was training cadets in ROTC. I had some phenomenal young men and women that I worked with, and most of them are, are senior captains or majors now, and they're they're doing great stuff. They're kicking ass, taking names, and. I wanted to, to kind of tell a story thinking about them of, OK, some of these kids were were really smart and really good. What would what would their reaction be to something like this? Right. And so taking the cadet that's you know kind of the, the butt of the joke, applying the the real world aspects of, of them and their t- their uh, personalities and their abilities, and then wrapping it into a story was was so much fun that, you know, I hope like it leaves readers with the idea of, that totally could happen. There's a, there's a plausibility to it. Well, I,
2: I particularly like the the fact that there was some question as to, you know, so do you really still have authority?
0: Right.
3: Uh,
2: You know, and uh, is the the command structure we have set up, is that the way it's going to be? Because, you know, there are certain uh, cadets that are like, I can do better. Right. I I did better. (laughs) Uh, And yet they, they're still having to work that out. So that that does some nice dynamic uh, tension within their, uh, within their group as to yeah. you know, what are we going to do, why are we going to do it, and, and why should we be doing what you tell us to do. Exactly. Uh, uh, really uh, an excellent kind of way to uh, illustrate that. And I don't think you could probably do that with a regular Army unit in the same way. No,
3: I you you can't and especially with a with a group of of such a diverse thought and abilities as this group you you have to have that type of that type of tension between them where you've got you know three of them are at the same rank if you will and the the rest of them are underclassmen and so they're they're kind of along for the ride and everybody has to figure out what's going to happen it was that was it. Was a lot of fun to to set that up, and as I, the deeper I got into the writing of it, the, the more it just kind of came together. It was a great concept. I'm really glad that I ended up going with cadets versus a regular army unit.
2: Yeah, no, and they they also have a because they're first off U.S. Army cadets, ROTC kids. They have a, a good cross section of like where they're from and what their backgrounds are and their skill sets. Mm-hmm. which is uh, and i i know that they're not I haven't served myself with it. i know that there's oftentimes you can look at a, any formation and you'll find a hundred different skills within a hundred different people that that might apply at some point or other in your actions
3: mm-hmm. uh, or yeah like one of, you know one of the cadets is an emt and you know, is that a reality thing? Absolutely it is. I've known several cadets that have gone through and gone through their EMT training as part of being in college. So they had that skill set and that was something that they were le- continually learning and applying as they went through. You know, I had kids that were varsity athletes that were used. To, I had one kid that was a, a cross country runner and I swear the kid could run 23 hours a day and never you know, breathe hard. And right. that was just part of his thing, you know. The, the, the cadets would be doing something extremely physically taxing, and he's standing there barely breaking a sweat. Like, what's the big deal?
2: So, I'm, I'm reminded of that uh, part of uh, Band of Brothers where the, the baseball <laughs> player just nails a, a German with a, with the hand grenade.
3: Yep, exactly. <laughs> Bam, right on. Him. Yeah. So yeah, that what you see in that in that cross section is it, it really is. Uh, the, the, the concept of the melting pot in ROTC and in the army and in, in any unit that you would serve in, that you've got such diverse backgrounds, abilities and skill sets that it just comes together and it's, it's fun to see.
2: Yeah, no, it's, uh, and it's very well done in the, in the crossing as well. I, uh, you gather that it's, uh, one of, because one of the things that you're faced with is, you know, the, the, uh, the lead cadet is faced with, you know, blatantly racism and, uh, certainly the, the, uh, idea that's you know you can't be a you can't be in command
3: right
2: and he handles that magnificently and repeatedly (laughs) not Um, that it doesn't frustrate him
3: (laughs) and and that was something you know in in complete honesty i i don't i didn't know if i really wanted to, to go that route until i was talking with eric and eric was like absolutely you should yeah. And now you have the opportunity to you, you can address this. And then it was the same thing with the, the two women in the in the squad. You know, what's their place going to be? How do you do this going forward? Because there's going to be that effect. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, I, as I've as I've thought about where I want to go with the sequel, and I'd love to, to do a series because I have a, a great name for it in mind. Uh, it would be so much fun to, to be able to, to explore those different aspects of it, too, not just the, the conflict itself, but what, the, what the, the political socioeconomic ramifications of them being there, because while they are yeah. cadets and they don't really have a full understanding of history, there's certain things that they do know. And there's right. things that they remember, you know, if, even if they just played trivia in the bar on Friday night, there's things that they know and things that they could affect just based off of their knowledge alone, which is fun. But who they, they are is going to have a much bigger effect later on.
2: Do they know about the whiskey war?
3: <laughs> I would imagine that at least one of them, maybe Murphy does, you know, being the the, the, the closet okay. historian. Uh, uh, I think that, you know, there's, there's probably things that that might be a little obscure even for him, but there's things that they're looking that they would be certainly looking forward to, like where's Napoleon Bonaparte, for example. You know, well, even the law
2: the law student might know just because it was you know the first time of taxation. Uh, there yeah. were people basically. Oh well, we just had a revolution. We can do it again.
3: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so the, those types of things, you know, and what they're they're going to run into if, if we're able to con, to continue this, they're going to run into things because they're going to remember like the name of Benedict Arnold. They yeah. may not remember everything, but they're going to have that warning sign of, hey, wait a minute, this is this is not a good situation. And so being able to to explore that tacit level of knowledge and you know not really fully understanding things might be fun to explore with other well, and, and
2: receive knowledge like the you know that you do you play around with that quite uh handily with uh, the state of the uh of what's going on in trenton uh because the the average high school uh, history lesson about that is uh moderately inaccurate um oh. it, the end result is fairly accurate but it's not at all like uh you know accurate as far as like what was really going on uh, yeah. on the ground on those days
3: yeah th- that was something in talking about the, the the research aspect the deeper I got into that the more you you really recognize that what we were taught in school is very much wrong yeah. um you know the hessians were not drunk they were not just partying their 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 asses off and or at least that division of them wasn't no, they would you know they were they were exhausted they were in a, a bad situation again like we talked about earlier the leadership aspect was lacking right. and it just happened that all that came about right about the same time as the nor'easter that hits right. and in that storm with everything going on the hessians basically said we're going in yeah. We're just we're going to go in and stay warm. And that alone, that piece of the of the, the Battle of Trenton was enough to turn the tide for Washington and the Continentals. They they lost no one in Trenton. They had two major injuries, but lost no one actually in Trenton. They lost two on the march, but nothing in the battle itself, which is phenomenal when you think yeah. about
2: just moving those guns, moving the artillery is, is a phenomenal activity that, you know, from boats off boat, off the boats, onto the boats, into action all that to only lose two folks on the march over there especially given that they didn't necessarily have footwear. oh no at all let alone no. re- you know reasonable footwear for the conditions.
3: yeah and it was not an easy move. you know when, when they got the guns across it was not an easy move. there was one area in particular that they struggled to get those guns through right. and once they did they were able to, to obviously bring them to bear on Trenton but for a while that delayed the march because they they ran into mud and they ran into a very serious area of terrain and where we you went from low to high ground and they, they really struggled for a while.
2: Really well done. I, I enjoyed the book thoroughly, The Crossing uh, by Kevin Eikenberry. Uh, we got our last question here would be the, what conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you in the coming year? And what other work do you have in the pipeline for your fans to read?
3: So for the rest of the year, I've only got a couple of events. I'm gonna be at Dragon Con here in uh, a little bit more than a month down in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. I'm going to do the Chris Kennedy Publishing Factory Con, which is kind of not necessarily a real con, but it's, it's kind of like a little ba- vacation event where we take over a campground in uh, CoinJock, North Carolina uh, for a weekend with readers and fans. And then I'm going to be one of the uh, keynote speakers at 20 Books to uh, 50K Conference in Vegas. Uh, they've asked me to come teach with some of the, the courses I've taught before, so I'm going to be a, one of their featured speakers, which is going to be a lot of fun. As for other work, I'm working right now on a a two-book kind of duology in the Four Horsemen universe that actually will complete the major storyline that I've been responsible for for the last four years. So I'm working on that with my friend Jason Cordova. And uh, once we turn those two in, then I'm hoping to catch up with the Murphy's Lawless universe and uh, write a a new book, which, excuse me, would actually be a novel, uh, following my characters Bo and Eliza as uh, they undertake a key mission on the planet, which will be a lot of fun to write. And then beyond that, I uh, want to be looking, hopefully, at, again, a, a sequel for The Crossing and then have a, a couple of other projects in the works that, uh, you know, the, the writing calendar's full. And as long as I can keep moving forward, it'll be a good thing. Cool.
2: Any short stories coming from you? Uh...
3: I actually, yeah, I've got, so I've got a short story that's going to be coming up in uh, the next World War, a Weird World War anthology from Sean Patrick Hazlitt that's, that's focused on China. Uh, I've got a, a story about a, a downed aviator who runs into a mermaid. That's kind of fun. Uh, i'm also i've got a, a story into david boop on submission for his uh next west w- weird western anthology that follows my peacemaker from the forestman universe which is kind of fun to be able to do that cool. uh got another short story out there in a the universe i can't talk about yet because that would be pretty really pretty awesome if i can g- get that one approved so at least a couple more short stories coming and there's always things that that end up popping up on the calendar that you say yeah i'll do that so <laughs> i'm sure i'll have at least a couple more
2: Well, it's been great talking to you about the crossing, Kevin Eikenberry. Once again, appreciate you coming on the show today.
3: Thanks again, Griffin. Glad to be here.
2: This has been the Bane Free Radio Hour with your host, Griffin Barber.
1: And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobra's. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly but power brings temptation, and not all the cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to
0: be a cobra. The brittle silence in the room remained for several seconds after the door closed behind them. "'You knew all along I didn't do it,' Johnny said at last. Mendro shrugged minutely. "'Not conclusively, but we were ninety percent sure.' The computer doesn't record a complete film every time the vision enhancers are used, you know. We had to correlate that usage with servo-movements to know whether you'd done it or not. And until you identified Viljo as the probable culprit, we didn't know whose records we also needed to pull. You still could have told me then that I wasn't really under suspicion. I could have, Mandro acknowledged. But it seemed like a good opportunity to get a little more data on your emotional makeup. You wanted to see if I'd be too preoccupied to function in combat, or whether I'd just slag Viljo and be done with it? And losing control either way would have had you out of the unit instantly, Mendro said, his voice hardening. And before you complain about being unfairly singled out, remember that we're preparing you for war here, not playing some game with fixed rules.' We do what's necessary, and if some people bear a little more of the burden than others, well, that's just the way it goes. Life is like that, and you'd better get used to it. The commander grunted. Ah, Sorry, I didn't mean to lecture. I won't apologize for running you an extra turn around the squirrel cage, but having come through the test as well as you did, I don't think you've got real grounds for complaint. No, sir. But it wasn't just a single turn around the cage. C-3 Bai's been holding me up for special notice ever since the training began. And if he hadn't done that, Viljo might not have gotten irritated enough to try tarnishing my image like he did. Which let us learn something important about him, didn't it? Mendro countered coolly. Yes, sir, but let me put it this way, then, Mendro interrupted. In all of human history, people from one part of a region, country, planet, or system have tended to look down on people from another its simple human nature. In today's dominion of man, this manifests itself as a faintly condescending attitude toward the frontier planets. Worlds like Horizon, Rajput, even Zimbwe, and Adirondack. It's a small thing and not at all important culturally, and it's therefore damned hard to test for its influence on a given trainee's personality. So without useful theory, we fall back on experiment. We raise someone from one of those worlds as the shining example of what a good cobra should be, and then watch to see who can't stand that. Viljo obviously couldn't, and neither, I'm sorry to say, could some of the others. I see. A week ago Johnny thought he'd probably have been angry to learn he'd been used like that. But now he had passed his test and would be remaining a cobra. They hadn't and would be becoming... What? What's going to happen to them? I remember you saying that some of our equipment wouldn't be removable. Will you have to kill them? Mendro smiled faintly, bitterly, and shook his head. No. The equipment isn't removable, but at this stage it can be rendered essentially useless. There was something like pain in the other's eyes, Johnny noticed suddenly. How many times he wondered, and for how many large or small reasons, had the commander had to tell one of his carefully chosen trainees that the suffering and sacrifice was all going to be for nothing. The nano-computer they'll be fitted with will be a pale imitation of the one you'll be receiving soon. It'll disconnect the power pack from all remaining weapons and put a moderate upper limit on servo power. To all intents and purposes, they'll leave Asgard as nothing more than normal men with unbreakable bones. And some bitter memories. Mendro gave him a long steady look. We all have those, Morrow. Memories are what ultimately spell the difference between a trainee and a soldier. When you've got memories of things that haven't worked, of things you could have done better or differently or not done at all, when you've got all that behind your eyes but can still do what has to be done, then you'll be a soldier.
1: That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Griffin Barber and Kevin Eikenberry and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afsharirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.